This is a podcast about the Sahel. It is one in a series. In this one, we will talk about the agronomic solutions to the region's agricultural challenges. We will hear about an integrated approach that combines different agronomic techniques, organic and chemical fertilizers, annual crops and naturally reproducing trees. And we will hear again about the interaction between herders and farmers, a central theme of the series. When I took on my first job in development in Burkina Faso in 1983, the brief that we got at the start of our development project was that the agronomic problems of this semi-arid and erosion-prone environment had largely been solved. The solutions were on the shelf. All we had to do was take them off the shelf and implement them. That assumption proved wrong. This podcast is about what in the end did seem to be successful from an agronomic perspective. So let's talk to Ferko Bodnar, who evaluated a whole range of agronomic interventions just recently. I'll let him introduce himself. So I'm an agronomist. I worked in Mali between 1998 and 2002 on a soil and water conservation program in the south, in the cotton area. Mm-hmm. And towards the end, we noticed that the finance would stop and I started a big evaluation on what on the achievements of soil and water conservation. Since then, I've also later joined the evaluation unit of the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And the Dutch Ministry is currently also developing a Sahel strategy. So it's something um, close to my heart. What we evaluated in Mali were about 15 years of soil and water conservation measures, partly collective by a whole village, partly individual. And very often it started in the first year with a big awareness, looking at erosion symptoms that farmers were aware of, uh, and then combined that with the first collective measures, with stone rows between the plateau up Uh, just above the cultivated fields where they had cotton, maize, sorghum, beans. And very often what you saw in such a village was that starting from the second year, collective actions were less um, favored and farmers started to do their individual soil and water conservation measures, which were typically a compromise between what research found perfect, let's say following contour lines, and what farmers found much more practical on the borders of their fields 
and that their oxplow uh, cultivation could also easily follow without bending too many curves. Um, what happened was that after 15 years, we had not really checked whether it had really reduced erosion, mm -hmm. increased crop yields, mm -hmm. or improved farmer income. We were very much focused on training, and we just assumed that this would also help farmers. But we were then also criticized, especially by other French researchers that said, but there's very little evidence. So um, I had a chance with my field staff, field staff of the CMDT, the cotton organization there, to actually interview farmers and do field observations on rills and gullies. But give me the list of agricultural techniques that the project was supporting. So you just mentioned the stone rows, you mentioned uh, traction azine, so the, the animal traction. So yeah. give me the, what was the list? What was yeah. the, so stone rows were something to start with. Mm -hmm. And if there was a plateau that was half bare, where typically people cut their firewood and have their cattle grazing, there were often also regulations on how to use that, not to cut too much, not to burn it. So that was on the plateau. Then the stone rows, and then around individual fields, we had either grass strips with andropogon or vetiver, napier in cases. Um, Check dams where you had really gullies that were not very deep but quite wide. So check dams with stones or wood or crop residues. So that they wouldn't widen. Yeah, to to stop it. But yeah. uh, they did in the, they did them in the right order because if you don't stop up, Upstream. then it will be washed away. Yeah. So um, and then there was uh, the cultivation on contour with oxplowen. Uh, was often done in any direction that was most convenient, let's say the length of the field. But if that happened to be uh, along with the slope, that wouldn't help. Yeah. So they wouldn't cultivate following contour lines, but they would choose the line that was most perpendicular to the slope. And that already helped mm -hmm. because the slopes were only one, two, three percent, very yeah. gentle slope. What they also did was working on soil fertility. Most cotton farmers also have a few cows, one ox, two oxen and uh, they used improved cattle pens where they would keep their cattle at night and they would use crop residues that otherwise would be burned uh, to put a small layer on the floor so that captures the nitrogen and the organic matter content so you mm -hmm. produce a lot more compost than if you only have the cow manure to dry so they call that improved cattle pens and for those who didn't have cattle or for something closer to the home, you had also compost pits. Mm. So that was the main thing done for soil fertility. So in practice, it was a combination of fertilizer they got for the cotton and the organic uh, fertilizer that they produced from the improved cattle pens and compost pits.
One uh, technique when I worked in Burkina Faso in the 80s, one thing that we didn't do was sort of help trees regenerate, naturally regenerate. We tried to plant trees, which usually did not work. <laughs> Most of the seedlings were eaten by the goats. Uh, but now what I hear from people, this naturally regeneration of trees with the help and the management of the farmers, that has taken up quite nicely. Was that also in your area the case? Yes, it started. So where they, you have these plateau areas where cattle graze and where they collect firewood, uh, very often they were degraded because there was a lot of burning and over-exploitation, over-grazing going on. So where communities could regulate that to minimize, well, to maximize, I should say, the amount that could be exploited from there, you did see that there was a very good regeneration of shrubs and trees. Mm. Uh, so uh, that worked well on the plateau. It's a sort of collective action because you have yeah. to accept regulations. And in the fields as well, farmers were encouraged, especially this Federbia albida, this mm -hmm. leguminous tree that drops its leaves in the rainy season, um, to put a big stick next to it uh, and to protect it. So the wild seedlings did to protect it. And that is much more effective than planting these trees because not only is planting trees more expensive, but very often the roots get damaged. So these natural regeneration are of a much stronger tree. So now you evaluated all these things, or packages of these things. Yes, exactly. So we tried to separate. The, the difficulty was there was not a real good baseline on what sort of crop yields farmers were getting uh, in, in 1985 or 86 when this project started. Um, there were some maps made of erosion gullies at that time in 86, if I'm not mistaken. And we had an inter-student going around in the same area with a GPS and re-measuring all these erosion gullies. And this was one of the first villages, so also with the most activities, most active village, I could say. And there you see that three quarters of the rails and the gullies, they're gone. You, you hardly find them. Mm -hmm. Or they're, they're filled up. They're, they, you know, there are now cotton plants or maize plants in them. So it is effective mm -hmm. if you're that persistent in your measures. Uh, but then we also compared, we sort of reconstructed the baseline really, looking at villages that were trained uh, more than 10 years ago, from villages that were trained recently, from villages that were not yet trained. And from these comparisons, you could also see that uh, those that, were, that started being active 15 years ago, they now obtained by far the best yields, mm -hmm. especially in cotton. And cotton is an advantage because they use chemical fertilizer. That's the first thing that washes away if you have sheet erosion. And another advantage is the records, the yield records are very reliable, unlike mm -hmm. the yield records for maize or sorghum. So it was relatively easy to show that this cotton yield really improved. And even though it improved perhaps between 5 and 15%, if you calculate the value of that cotton yield, and you look at the investment of this Dutch program, I think they invested about 7 million euros in that 10, 15 year period. Um, the benefit in terms of improved yield annually already exceeds that. But it's a, a struggle 
with a long breath, or how you call it. What I like very much is uh, our grass strips. Uh, grass strips are very little competitive, they're easy to cut, and if you cut them you can either feed that to a kettle or you touch your roof with it or you make bathroom fences with it. So they're, they're very effective against erosion because they're very densely rooted, they tiller a lot, and they're better against erosion than let's say shrubs like Jatropha or Euphorbia. Um, um, yeah, and that's also, you see farmers, when I went there, and the project had already finished, we just looked at what sort of measures were still being adopted by farmers. They still replicate them. The stone rows, it just takes too much effort to get the whole village involved. It, it's a lot of labor. Mm -hmm. But these and individual it happens measures... On the, on the upper slope. Because that's where you have to stop the erosion. Well, that's where you have to stop. Start. Yeah, the, yeah, the exactly. Yeah. Um, but the grass strips are very often on boundaries of fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More their own investment, in a sense. Yeah, their own the investment. stone rose is more like a collective good. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And an, uh, an interesting thing is you mentioned Burkina Faso. Very often in Burkina Faso they have the stone rose in between fields and in Mali up from the cultivated area. And later I found out that that made sense because in Burkina it was a drier area. Because when I looked at yield data, I had a number of years of yield data, we saw that in dry years the stone rose didn't really help because it actually stopped uh, rain going into the cultivated areas. Mm -hmm. So the drier the area, the more sense it makes to have stone rows in between your fields rather than on top. You saw definitely a very good trend of measures that were taken many years ago. Uh, and then you also have a cumulative effect of both the stone rows and the live fences and the grass strips. Do these benefits build up over time? Is I it, think so. Is because it cumulative? Yes, because what you do see both above the stone rows and above from the grass strips is sedimentation. Mm -hmm. And this sedimentation is very often more moist and it gets a little bit of fine grass, so water really infiltrates there. Mm -hmm. I read something else about a technique I vaguely remember, this is Zai. So this is a, also something that you can done as part of this package, no? Yes, um, Zai was in particular popular in a slightly drier areas, I would mm -hmm. say just north of the cotton area, San, Tominian, you had a couple of German projects working there too. And um, that is really water harvesting with this sort of semicircle stones. And then you, you dig a planting pit in which you com combine your crop residues, a bit of compost, and you concentrate both soil fertility and water 
for a tree or for some cereal, sorghum. So yeah, that was very effective. And I, th I understood farmers are replicating that by themselves as well. And then what about this, um, you know, chemical fertilizers versus organic fertilizers? There's a whole debate going on. Yeah. I hear some people say, no, no, you cannot do without chemical fertilizers. Other agronomists, uh, I remember a French person that I'm reading about, he claims that everything can be done with organic fertilizer. What did you guys find? Well, we had somebody from Royal Tropical Institute, Floris van der Poel, in the early 90s, and he calculated this nutrient, uh, mineral nutrient balance, the soil nutrient balance. So he looked at what went on the field in fertilizer, or compost, and what was taken out in the forms of harvest or soil erosion. If you look at these figures, you can see that the compost alone would not be enough. And there's not really, in the area where we worked, such a thorough, let's say, leguminous-based, improved follow to really restore soil fertility uh, without any chemical fertilizers. On the other hand, I would not rely on chemical fertilizers alone either because the soil organic matter is declining and we have to make more effort to keep that soil organic matter uh, high enough for the water holding capacity, also for the nutrient water holding capacity. So yeah, I would really plea for the combination of organic manure as well as chemical fertilizer. that you found encouraging? Anyone, yeah. anyone that we missed? Well, one interesting one is, it's, we didn't really look at that in detail, but you had this the chatrofa, yeah. and it makes an oil that can be used in diesel generators. Mm -hmm. um, they, start, they tried the project in Mali, I think it didn't really come off the ground, but women really like it, this oil, because they can make soap out of it. And that is a much more interesting business case than a biofuel. Mm -hmm. Because they then replace the edible oil from karité, uh, chia butter, by something that is inedible, the jatropha oil. So you keep more food and you still make your soap. So I wouldn't uh, say, I wouldn't be too disappointed that the biofuel part didn't work. I would still, I see that households still like jatropha just for, for making soap. Um, now, one thing when you talk about cattle and animal man, man, uh, manure, then you also have to think about these pastoralists, no? Yes. What, what was your impression when you worked in, in Mali, how they were being approached or, or not? Yeah, I was there in between 98 and 2002. Um, by then there were rarely problems in the cotton area. So uh, livestock keepers, they had usually a fixed route that they would wander every year. Mm -hmm. They would know the village elders to contact, where can I put up uh, tonight or these two weeks, where can I go for water, where can I leave my cattle. And there were not that many problems. There were a bit more problems more north of the cotton zone, I would say. Um, we talk also about how 
how they benefited each other. I mean, right? Yeah. Well, what happened was that uh, these cattle, these livestock herders, they would have their cattle graze on crop residues and leave cow manure uh, instead. So it also fertilizes fertilized that field. And yeah, there was not an, really a competition on the use of land at, at that time. I did notice though that the same detail, the, the, the semi-government organization we worked for, as well as many of the donors, didn't put a lot of emphasis on also involving them. One of the stories I got from my former project director was that yeah a lot of development projects were being designed uh, consulted during the dry season when the pearl were gone <laughs> so almost by design they fell out of the discussion about what could be done for the region you know how do we protect trees how do we invest in anti-erosion so was that in your area also yes i think so i remember that there was actually one person from the north as an agricultural extension officer working at the same day mm -hmm. and he pointed at some of these risks. We're not really involving them. Mm -hmm. We are promoting here the collection of crop residues for compost making, but that's not very good for those livestock keepers who are also wanting to eat these crop residues. And at that time he was being laughed at. So there was not that well understanding of that we should strive for measures that benefited both groups. What, what I found interesting was the long time it takes to yield results. Because this was a project that had taken from research from the early 80s, then a pilot scale from 1986 to 89, then a scaling up phase, and then I was there in the late 90s. And you see that all that period has been necessary to really achieve results at scale. And my concern is that Many projects are designed to last only three, four or five years and you would never achieve scale in that such a short period. One of the key um, actors in this whole story, apart from the farmers, are the extension agents. No? They need to have a particular way of communicating with farmers. What did you learn about that? I think the extension agents, when I arrived at the same day, they were quite active. They each had a motorbike and they each had their specialization. And of course, the main interest was cotton for this organization. But cotton would also benefit from organic fertilization or erosion control. So I think that extension package uh, worked quite well in a sort of integrated way. Now, by the time I left, and I'm not sure how it is going now, but there was talk of dividing, separating these different tasks. There would be privatization, purely looking at cotton production uh, and not in an integrated way. So I'm not sure whether there is still a very effective extension 
program also looking at soil and water conservation activities, apart from maybe small-scale NGO activities. Mm. But did the project not try to build the capacity in the government agencies to continue this work? Yes, yeah, so within the same detail, I think that capacity was built eh, between uh, 1986 and yeah. 2000. Yeah. But then also the Netherlands, uh, but also the World Bank, they wanted to privatize this whole and liberalize this cotton sector. Uh, and one of the consequences was a loss of this integrated aspect that you look at soil fertility and soil and water conservation and at agricultural production of cotton. And that you also realize that these farms do many other things than just cotton and that these other things actually benefit the cotton production, no? Exactly, yeah. exactly. I had one colleague saying what we did then by this semi-commercial, semi-government CMDT organization yeah, yeah. was a public-private partnership avant la lettre. Yeah, yeah. But you don't know how the situation is now? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, because I talked to others and they say that these extension services have collapsed, basically. Yeah, that's what I understood. People feared by then in the early 2000s. And one of the things uh, Serge Mikhailov talked about and, and some others, the sort of extension system that was very popular, certainly in the 70s and 80s, was this training and visit system, which presupposes a standardized message. No? And right. I guess for one crop, maybe cotton, you know, in the same area, maybe that would make sense. But for this more mixed farming and very variable agroclimates, it's very difficult to have standardized messages. And so the type of extension agent that can do the training and visit system, basically very disciplined, very rigorous, planned dissemination of messages, that sort of agent is very different than the one you need to work with the farmers, try this, try that, see how it goes, make some different packages depending on the circumstances. That's, that's definitely true. So we had the sort of the lowest level agriculture extension workers. They were mainly focusing on cotton, what area, how much fertilizer. And they were, we had one level up, there were 33 of them in the south of Mali. And they looked at a more integrated way. Initially, they were paid from Dutch funding, but then they were sort of incorporated in this same day structure. And what they had a, an approach that was called a global diagnostic. So they discussed with the village what was happening, and they looked at all aspects in relation to each other, and then made a plan uh, that not only looked at cotton, but also looked at better care of the soil and vegetation. But uh, we should check it. But then the fear is that as the same that it has not been privatized. What has happened, if I'm not mistaken, is that they divided the area and a number of regions and organized it around the cotton ginning factories, yeah. uh, each with their own transport and extension system. Which but is focused on cotton. Yes. And this, but the story you're telling me, there's more than cotton that one should look at. Exactly. And, and, and I know at the time when that discussion was going on in 2002, I did try to convince a few people, you know, look at it from an integral way. Even like yeah. luminous crops benefit cereals and cotton. And you're not going to regenerate trees if your focus is cotton, no? Exactly. Right.
I think eventually we'll have to make even more effort than we did in building up the soil organic matter. Because the amount that we added, about 700 kgs dry matter per hectare per year, was insufficient to replenish the two tons of organic matter that we were losing. I think we should also reduce a little bit the, the annual plowing. The thing is, with this annual plowing, when you go from manual yeah. tillage to deeper ox plow tillage, you actually decompose your organic matter a bit quicker. So you get quick yeah. yields, quick better yields. But in the long term, of course, you're also depleting your soil faster. So the, the negative effects come in late, which, is, which makes it difficult for people to comprehend. And the same is true if you go from tillage to a conservation agriculture where you reduce your tillage operations. In the short term, you may find more negative effects than positive effects, but on the long term, you have much more stable yields. And given the more frequent droughts or more frequent extreme weather events, uh, I think we need to look more into this sort of conservation agriculture and reduce tillage options. From Kaya, where I looked at this, and there the stories were like, the tillage is okay in the Bafon, where the clayish soils, it's very good for them to be broken up. But when you get further up the slopes, the, this, the, this crust on the soil is the only structure that the soil has. So if you break it, you produce erosion in quite a massive way, actually. Yeah. And so people were very hesitant. They were much more in the stone rows and the zais and mm -hmm. that sort of stuff than in promoting tillage. Right. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Yeah. I think that the soil structure is very fragile. And the drier the area, the more fragile that structure. Yeah. And there's this crust on the soil. That exactly. Once you break it. What I also appreciated from this project is uh, this collective work. And as you said earlier, we should then make a bit more effort to also involve the nomadic livestock keepers to at least maintain their livelihood as well, not make it more impossible for them. But this collective work, this awareness, the training, going through the terrain, find out where the problems are, making a plan. Um, in spite of that collective work, after one or two years, maybe stops and farmers continue individually, I wouldn't do without it. I think it's really a strength and it's definitely a strength of some of these West African countries where this social tissue is still strong. People are willing to collaborate with their neighbors and work together at village level.
it is good to end on a positive note. Like Ferco, I have also experienced effective collective action in West African communities. For instance, I once lived in a village in Cameroon, and weddings and funerals were elaborate and very costly events that could bankrupt a person. But the cost was shared between all attendees more or less like an insurance scheme. Because behind the scenes, every attendee made a cash contribution which was meticulously recorded. So that when that person had to host a wedding or a funeral, the gesture could be reciprocated exactly by the current host. We need to build on such capacity for collective action, build on the institutions that are in place and help them learn from what works and what doesn't. Then, the agronomic knowledge that somebody like Ferko Bodnar has accumulated will also be accumulating with the people on the ground. Then, the integrated approach we talked about in this podcast can spread out over the region. This integrated approach combines different agronomic techniques, mixes organic and chemical fertilizers, marries the planting of annual crops with naturally reproducing trees, and yes, partners with herders as well as farmers. The other day, I listened to a podcast about the impact of development finance in education. The bottom line was that the impact just wasn't there and according to some, even negative. The expert desperately tried to avoid saying the word failure, but it was, of course, a failure. In the case of the Sahel, we also have had many failures, but we learn from failure. And learning from failure need not be a very challenging, complex and long-term process. We just need to start doing it much more systematically and together with the communities on the ground. People like Ferko Bodnar have taken the time to make an inventory of what works and what doesn't. Let's learn from it. Thank you for listening. Music, as always, by Anansi Sisek.